what are you doing to help reduce climate change? But then the second question is, if we don't get there and temperatures increase, how robust is your business? This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Today, we are very honored to have as our guest, Mr. Andres Gluski. He is President and CEO of AES Corporation. Andres, welcome to EEI. Thank you very much, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, to start off, we would like to, first of all, ask you, can you tell us a little bit about AES Corporation, maybe a brief history and where you are as a company? Yes. Well, AES uh, has its uh, roots as a very entrepreneurial company. It uh, started off as an independent power producer uh, in the States, uh, primarily with fossil plants, uh, and it expanded um, to many countries around the world uh, and included uh, distribution companies as well. So that, those are the roots of AES. I, I have been um, CEO for uh, 10 years. Uh, and really what I have done is first to focus the company. We were in 28 countries. We're, we're down to 12. Uh, really focus it in terms of uh, reducing our risk. For the first time in our history, we're an investment-grade uh, company. And really focus on becoming a technological leader. So today, you know, our mission is uh, accelerating the future of energy, clean energy. Uh, and today we have a unique suite, I would say, of technologies that we've developed. I mean, that's been really one of our uh, uniqueness is that we've had uh, five unicorns, that is taking small companies and growing them to more than a billion dollars of value. Uh, and we've done this in areas that really help us, again, accelerate that future, accelerate the adoption of renewables, of making energy consumption more efficient. So the first one we did was energy storage. We started about 13 years ago uh, using lithium ion batteries. Uh, it was considered at the time, you know, uh, uh, perhaps a unattainable holy grail. Uh, well, today we are in 29 countries. We have a joint venture with Siemens. Uh, we have about three gigawatts in construction or up and running. And uh, we are the, we've overlaid uh, an AI-enabled bidding engine where we have six gigawatts under management. Uh, and I think that we can say that we're the leader in, in that technology. Uh, but not only is it providing the integrated kits of the energy storage uh, and the control systems, uh, but it's also inventing new applications. So we've had a number of new applications, even very recently, a, a virtual reservoir uh, where you can run a take a run of the river plant and, and use it as if it had a reservoir, uh, whether it was, for example, with Google, uh, providing the first 24-7 carbon-free energy to three data centers here in Virginia that uh, are 90% carbon-free netted on an hourly basis. Uh, we also have uh, Uplight. Uplight is the leading provider of energy, cloud-based energy efficiency services. It reaches 100 million U.S. homes through 80 electric and gas utilities. So we're really the engine behind those energy uh, efficiency programs. Uh, the last one we're working on is really 5B. 5B has a prefab uh, solar product uh, called Maverick. Uh, this product allows you to double the energy density on any piece of land. 
Uh, it can be built in a third of the time. And very importantly, it is hurricane resistant. Uh, it started in Australia. We have two facilities that have resisted category four hurricanes up in Darwin. Uh, we're getting it wind tunnel tested and certified for category five. But this could be a game changer because one of the great problems with doing renewables has been that they're not hurricane cyclone resistant, uh, especially solar panels. And so this technology could really be uh, a game changer. So all in all, we're very excited about where we are at AES, where we bring these new technologies, uh, put them on our platform. That's how we grow them. But we also make them available to other companies. So we're, I like to say we're open source uh, and, and we compete with people who buy battery applications that we developed or efficiency applications that we help develop. Uh, or for example, something like uh, prefab solar, like we developed. Because global warming is a global problem by definition. And we're not going to solve it just uh, using our own platform. We have to help everybody get there. Interesting. You talk about global warming at some point, and I was just going to get into that. But just before we do that, can you just talk briefly, Andres, about the transition? How do you get the company behind all of this interesting innovation that you just talked about? How do you get the culture to change? Well, that, that, that's a great question. I think first, our uh, DNA was that of a entrepreneur, you know, because we were found, founded in 1981. Uh, in the uh, independent power producer business. We had to win every bid. We had to innovate. Uh, so that was part of our DNA. I think what was most difficult is saying, look, you know, we were very good at fossil plants, but that's not the future. So it's hard to give up something that you're very good at, been very successful at. But I was able to convince the company that the future was in renewables. And we were able to make calculated bets, if you will, be it with energy storage or energy efficiency, um, and really grow these technologies. So nothing succeeds like success. I would say nowadays, uh, you know, you, there's very little resistance to the change. Uh, there was some at the beginning, un unquestionably. So the, it was really saying, look, this is the future and then showing how we can be successful in that future. Uh, I think those really were the, were the key uh, aspects of this. You mentioned climate change. We have this ongoing energy transition in the world today. Um, and I mean, what's your view on where we are as a global, global community in achieving net zero? Is that something you spend a lot of time worrying about? Are we going to make it or what needs to happen? What's your view? Yeah, well, I do spend a lot of time worrying about it. Uh, why? Because climate change uh, may not be linear. You know, that's how we think about it. That we have, it's gonna gradually change and we have a certain number of years and we have to cut emissions and then things will be all right. Well, maybe it's a nonlinear process. And, you know, it, it kind of like, as glaciers melt, the world gets warmer, gets hotter, faster. So I think we have to move very, very quickly. Uh, what does worry me? Uh, well, what technologies are available? That's why we spent so much time um, creating new technologies and new applications and making them available. Uh, so I think we have to run. At the same time, uh, electricity is too important. We can't just shut down fossil plants overnight. There has to be a planned transition that is reliable and that is uh, cost efficient. So it is a delicate one because it's not just inventing something new and rolling it out. It's phasing out the old in a safe way. Uh, and that takes a lot of uh, coordination with authorities, with clients. 
Uh, and it's somewhat more of a complex story than a lot of people want to hear. Interesting. So uh, the G7 is taking place. Uh, I'm sure you've been uh, paying close attention. They came up with their policy statement yesterday, and they spent a lot of time on energy and climate, uh, interestingly enough. Um, what more do you think policymakers can do to help accelerate this energy transition? Well, I think the, the most important thing is to make sure that all the different policies are coherent. So if, for example, we want to ship supply uh, away from say China, uh, that we do it in a fashion that doesn't disrupt supply. Because the way I see it, and my I cut my teeth as a businessman in a telecom, is that the growth and demand, I think, will be faster than people expect. So we have to make sure that we have the supply to meet that demand. Uh, so if we have to relocate factories and find new supplies of various minerals and, and et cetera, that it be planned. Because if you do it otherwise, it could disrupt supply, it could slow down the program. Uh, tax policies have to be uh, consistent with that as well. So I'd, I'd say more than anything is that policymakers have to stand back and say, okay, if global warming is our ultimate challenge, to make sure that the other policies are consistent with that. And there may be things that they want to change, you know, sources of supply, et cetera, but to do it in such a way that gives industry the opportunity to shift. So, you know, I don't think there's any resistance to any of the policies I've heard. It's just a question of how do we phase them in in such a way that, that doesn't slow down the process. It's it's interesting you mentioned that, Andres, because I haven't heard a lot of world leaders, global leaders talking about this phase transition, looking at consistency and coherence. coherence. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I, I want to move now to talking about the opportunities that the that the transition seemed to bring. AES recently announced your uh, collaboration with Google. You talked about some of the innovations that you see coming. Um, you know, tell us about that that arrangement with Google. How did it go about? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? What was the genesis of what has become a very innovative way of working with companies like Google, which you guys have done? Yes, as I said, we're open source. So we work with our competitors, quite frankly, <laughs> to make them uh, more energy efficient. And you know, we will compete uh, for a RFP, you know, with people using our technology. So that's been a, a decision that we've taken from the start. So with Google, that same philosophy, we've worked with a lot of clients uh, to say, what do they really want? How can we mutually achieve it? So really was, I'd say, reaching out from both. Google had some very innovative things they were working on, and they saw that we were leaders in technology. So it's, it's, we sort of mutually came together to work on things. And from that, really was the genesis of saying, what do you want? We want carbon-free energy on an hourly basis for our data centers. Uh, and it took us some time to really be able to say, in PJM, how can we deliver that without taking undue risk and be able to deliver that at a cost competitively? So that's the thing. I mean, you could do this by you know, overbuilding and you know, cost is no problem, but that's not what's going to be accepted by the market. It has to be cost-efficient, and it also has to have a level of risk that's acceptable to the parties because this is a long-term agreement and we're, we are committed to having 90% carbon-free energy 24-7. Uh, so what happens if there's a snowstorm? What happens in other circumstances? So it's uh, a lot of modeling is, are behind this, a lot of risk mitigation is behind this. Uh, but it's certainly something that, you know, it, it's a similar optimization problem uh, that we face in in many cases. You know, we're working on um, a, a green ammonia, a large green ammonia project in Chile. It's the same problem. It's how do you deliver cost efficient, twenty four seven carbon free energy? 
Um, and you know, it's not only Google that faces this problem, it's other corporations as well. So we're ready to assist them as well. In terms of innovation, I mean, this is, this is cool. I mean, I hadn't heard about the optimization engine behind it, so this is great. Um, you are an investor-owned utility, and it's very rare to hear a lot of utility companies doing what you're doing, making a lot of investments in innovation, R&D. Uh, how are your investors responding to these kinds of positive news with regards to your investments in innovation? Is that something, it's a plus or minus, or is it sort of a just be careful? What's, what's, your, what's your take? Uh, I would say today it's a plus. Uh, there certainly was an education. Okay. Uh, you know, sometimes people were looking at me funny when I would talk about new technologies, say, five years ago. That I was saying, look, this is the future and we have to invest in it. Today, some people weren't particularly impressed. But look, we've had five unicorns, meaning small companies that we started with $50 million um, and, you know, are now worth more than a billion today. And we've had four in the last five years. So that, that I think, has settled the, uh, the issue. I think that... Um, the key was that our investors understand that we create value in two ways. One is just with the startup companies themselves, that they are worth a lot of money. There's a lot of value creation for our shareholders who own a piece of it. Now, they can't value those companies uh, with a typical sort of earnings per share multiple that you would give a utility because, quite frankly, they're, they're growing at 400 500% a year. So those type of companies get a much higher multiple. What we have done is go out and get markers, get third parties to invest who validate our investment uh, thesis and validate a valuation. The second thing is it also helps us grow because we are using these new technologies to provide more competitive renewables, to provide more value add for our clients. And they're seeing that reflected in uh, share growth, in, in earnings per share growth. Um, and that is has been very well received. But they understand that we're able to get you know these returns and get this growth because of our knowledge of the new technology. So they're getting value two ways. One in the traditional business, which they know how to value uh, in terms of growth uh, and cash flow and earnings per share. But they get an, a kicker, and that kicker is the value of the startups themselves. Do you do you see this as a model for our industry because of all of the transformation that's happening with? the rise in distributed energy resources and some of the challenges to the conventional business model. Do you see this pathway as something more and more electric companies will consider? Well, I think it's, I think, you know, it takes a unique culture to be able to do these startups successful. You know, there's a long history of big companies, whether in the oil sector or electric sector, buying sort of startups and, uh, or, or actually even in the technology sector, people buying startups uh, and then not their growth stalls and their integration fails. So that, quite frankly, may not be that easily copied. However, I do think that these technologies are the future. And I do think that um, our business model of being open source, we can work together. So I do think the companies should think more about these models, about energy efficiency, about new technologies um, in you know, working with open source people like us. I think there will be a lot of companies in our space that will have more sort of the utility model, which is you create a technology and you use it yourself and you use it for a competitive advantage versus your peers. Uh, you know, we crossed that bridge long ago. We wouldn't have been able to scale things the way we have if it weren't providing services for other companies. I, I like what you said regarding the sort of open source company. I haven't heard that before. So that's a unique takeaway from this conversation. But I also should note that, um, you know, you all seem to have 
defy the myth that the utility industry is not innovative, uh, but you seem to be changing that narrative or proving otherwise that it, it is actually innovative. Um, so AES is in 29 countries, like you said. So obviously the global energy access issues are something I'm sure you think about. Um, what is the role of storage in some of the new technologies you've talked about in accelerating global electrification across the globe, I mean, across the world? Sure. No, I just would like to clarify. AES has operations in basically 12 countries okay. today, but we sell energy storage systems and, and AI-enabled platforms in 29. Okay. Actually, in more than that. So it's the open source part that's in many more, more countries. Okay. So I would say, what are the, uh, again, I cut my teeth in telecoms, and it was very interesting. The world's first digit, all 100% digital network was in Chile. It wasn't in the, uh, at the time, you know, sort of Western Europe or the United States or Japan. And that was because you're able to leapfrog technologies. We also saw what happened with cellular uh, in Africa or in Latin America. So you can leapfrog technologies and go into the future. So today we have a suite of um, technologies that would allow places that are electrifying to leapfrog into the future. And I think that there are many places in Latin America, many places, but even I'd say more so in, in, in Africa, where you don't have to build out the whole network, where you can go to more distributed models. Uh, and energy storage is absolutely key because we all know that uh, renewables provide energy, but they don't provide capacity. And that's keeping the energy flowing 24-7 every day, you know, 365 days a year. Why? Because the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And there's another issue that the fact is that the um, frequency and voltage fluctuations, you know, due to wind gusts or clouds passing over the solar panels. So energy storage allows you to have First, the quality of renewable energy that's better than any conventional. Uh, second, it allows you to have that 24-7 you know, capacity. So you know, sun goes down, you still have electricity. Wind stops blowing, you still have electricity. Now, I think that we have to think about systems. So it's combining wind with solar, with battery storage, with hydro. Um, and I think you know, on a daily basis, we can certainly do that. I think that when you get to countries that have great interseasonal fluctuation you know that that's the most difficult part you know uh certainly nuclear plants can provide that today if we wanted to replace them in the future uh then you maybe something like green hydrogen uh will be necessary uh in many of those places so i think you have to tailor your response to the, the grid to the geography to the resources that are available uh, and that's why it's not a simple problem. It's it's an optimization problem with many different tools. And, and I think that optimization problem involves optimizing the regulatory system uh, to make to make all of this work. So uh, you've been working around the world for many years, Andres. Why why is it taking us so long to increase electrification, say in parts of Africa and other parts of the world? I mean, what is I mean, if you were to talk to African leaders or other leaders from developing countries, what would you tell them? Hey, guys, get this thing done. It's not difficult. What are they missing? Uh, well, there's a tendency. See, electricity regulators uh, are um, judged by how reliable the network is to a great extent. So if anything goes wrong, they're blamed. So I think there's a natural tendency to be somewhat hesitant about new technologies because you want to go with the tried and Proved, you know, the Trident, you know, you know, this works, this worked in Germany for 100 years, it's going to work here. 
uh, in Africa. However, the truth is that a lot of the regulations are 20 years behind the technology, and it's going to even get worse. So my recommendation would be to really uh, work with organizations like EEI to really see what's the latest in regulation uh, to be able to leapfrog the technologies. Don't rebuild the past. We don't have to bury uh, you know, hundreds of tons of expensive copper uh, to get you a network and, and places electrified. So you have to be on top of the latest technologies. An interesting case has been Chile. I mean, Chile was where we put in the first grid-scaled energy storage uh, successfully uh, in the world. And that's because the Chilean regulator tends to be very progressive and, and, and open to new technologies. So Chile is a wonderful example. I mean, we um, told with the Philippines about adopting energy storage to talk to the Chileans. You know, don't don't you know if you don't believe us because you know we we are effectively have a economic interest talk to a disinterested party uh so i think it's more important than ever uh because you know what you're facing is uh, demands from the population and especially in africa that's such a young population youngest population on the globe uh, a very uh connected population through uh mobile uh, cellular uh creative uh give them the power they need uh, give them to them in the best way, uh, you know. So the, what will be resistance? Well, you 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 might have state-owned uh, large companies which you know are a little bit afraid of this, and the regulator may be afraid of this. But if I were the leader, I would really try to push the envelope. And also, quite frankly, Africa did a wonderful job in most places with cellular cellular phones. So build on success. You were successful with cellular. Now be successful with more distributed energy. And obviously, attracting capital and attracting investors is, is going to be key. And that's one of the areas where you seem to have done such an excellent job. Um, so I want to talk about your leadership philosophy. So you took over AES 10 years ago, I believe, and, and you have turned all these unicorns into these really successful <clears throat> successful organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership philosophy? I mean, philosophy. What is What are the three things that would characterize why Andres is being so successful in what he does? Well, I'd really say it's, it's the team has been successful. You know, obviously, we're doing a lot of things. Uh, there are a lot of people who know more about the various technologies than I do. Uh, I would say that what have I done? Um, AES is interesting because it always was very progressive, uh, flexible, and, and very non-hierarchical, very flat. Uh, and we've always valued everybody's voice. So I'd say if I've done anything right is to choose people and put them in the right spot. We call it aces in their places. Uh, and so we have a lot of very talented people, but um, you know they're, they're very different. Uh, so how do you get a, a very diverse team in terms of uh, abilities, I would say, and, and, and outlook to work very effectively together? And that, that, I would say, is the best thing that we've done. We've created an atmosphere where um, innovators have thrived, where new ideas thrive, um, at the same time, you know, we're, we're financially very prudent. Uh, we have very interesting discussions. Uh, we have a very interesting approval framework. You know, it goes through uh, where it's, it's more collaborative than most developers. So it's not a zero-sum game, uh, which, which I like, because when we have a problem, people from all over the world will swarm it uh, and get the problem solved, and then they all go back to their jobs. Um, and I don't really have to say, well, because you did this, you're getting X thousand dollars. It's, it's a more holistic approach. And I really think that everybody's bought into the mission 
the mission of accelerating the future of, of clean energy. Uh, so the young people that come work with us are very mission driven. So it's not a question of money. It's a question of, are we walking the talk? Uh, do we provide them with interesting and challenging experiences? Uh, and you know, of course, that's very true for the startup companies that we partner with. You know, if, if we bureaucratize them or stifle them, you know, they're not going to choose us. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's, it's been a very interesting experience learning from all these people. Uh, and so my job has been like an orchestra conductor where I have a lot of uh, different instruments and I have to play them harmoniously. So I, I would say that that's been my job. It's interesting. I like the idea of the orchestra, the finding harmony in the organization. And so it just, I think, speaks to the fact that then AES is not just an open source externally, you're also an open source internally, uh, based on based on what you just said. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you seem to have gone down that path a little bit in what you said. But um, another acronym in the industry that I know AES is very keen on is, is this whole ESG. And you all were one of the leaders in making your, uh, you know, uh, disclosure uh, framework a couple of years ago. Where where do you see ESG going going from now? I mean, you have this uh, situation where the G seven countries are talking about the mandatory disclosure uh, and other forms of disclosures being put on different industries. So, what's the future for ESG from where you sit? Okay, uh, if if I may, I just want to mention something on the diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, today forty percent of our board is female, forty percent of our board is minority, uh, and if you look at our Senior management team, 30% is female. And I would say that, you know, we have people from many countries. Uh, so in some extent, uh, I, I like to think that we're a very American company in terms of we um, are very open, unhierarchical, like new ideas. Uh, so I would say it's in, uh, you know, very strict on um, uh, compliance issues. So in that sense, I think we're very American, but we're very international in terms of looking at our people. Um, and having deep roots anywhere we operate, we have, you know, mostly local people and and, and local boards. Now about uh, disclosure of um, uh, ESG issues. I, look, we've we've tried to take a lead in that. We were the first uh, large U.S. company to participate in the task force on financial disclosure, on climate-related financial disclosure uh, several years ago. We're on our third report. Uh, we. We are a part of the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Uh, so we think that's very important. I mean, the last one we did was really a, a test of the robustness of our business to climate change. And I'm very proud of that last report because it's really saying, look, this is what we're doing to fight climate change. You know, we're going to be net carbon zero by 2040. Uh, much shorter term, we're going to be less than 10% coal generation by 2025. Uh, we're growing renewables, you know, we're doing more than four gigawatts a year. Um, and, you know, and this, quite frankly, doesn't take any credit for our helping other people reach those renewable goals. So, you know, putting in the first energy storage in India with its huge renewable goals uh, doesn't count, but we're doing that anyway. So I'd say that we we are great believers in that because it makes you think it through. So one of the things is like, you know, what are you doing to help reduce uh, climate change. But then the second question is, if we don't get there and temperatures increase, how robust is your business? And it was very interesting uh, exercise. So we see that we are robust uh, in terms of, you know, we will be moving out of uh, fossil fuel. But additionally, you know, we have hardened our, um, our assets so that we're not 
that vulnerable to uh, two degree change say, in, in the climate. So I'm a big believer in it. I think we've been a leader in it. Uh, we'll continue to improve. Uh, it's it's a moving target because the more you disclose, it's you know what was great last year is, is mediocre or unacceptable this year. So it'll continue to increase, mm-hmm. and there'll be more and more pressure on companies to do this. If I have any criticism, it'd be sometimes it's a little bit cookie cutter because it's um, sort of check the box. And sometimes there's a much more interesting story behind the box. Interesting. Uh, just a few more, two more questions, Andrew, to end, or maybe three. One, you mentioned India, and that just wanted me to ask a question about how do you manage your risk around the world? I mean, you're one of the few U.S. companies, electric companies that are um, happen to be active in so many countries around the world. And at a time when a lot of people sort of are pulled back. So what convinces you to stay engaged with the world in terms of investments? And how do you navigate the world out there in terms of risk and, and other kinds of concerns that some investors may have? Well, risk management has been um, sort of a constant since I've been CEO. I mean, we've really looked at weather risk, commodity risk, currency risk, regulatory risk, off-taker risk. I can say uh, mathematically we're 70% less risky than we were when I started. Uh, and we're investment grade today, where AES was never investment grade in the past. So what have we done uh, about our business to make it so less risky? So our basic business is long-term contracts in dollars with investment grade off-takers. So geography is but one risk. So if I'm selling to Google or I'm selling to one of the big mining consortiums, if I'm selling to uh, big banks in dollars in one of these countries, um, it's it's a lot less risky. So it was very interesting to watch human beings outperform algorithms <laughs> last year because when COVID hit, and honestly, we were the first to talk about it, the first to uh, shore up our supply chains, and we were the first to work remotely, uh, and we were somewhat penalized for it after my earnings call. Uh, when COVID hit, our share dropped quite dramatically. And people were saying, well, that's Latin American exposure, international exposure. But the truth is, last year was our best year ever. Our collections actually went up. Our day sales outstanding went down. And you're saying, well, wait a second. Uh, Latin America was the hardest hit. Yes, but not our clients. So the truth is, like right now, there's a commodity boom. Well, our clients are doing very well for the most part. So it's, we have reduced, I mean, you know, not totally eliminated, but we're not selling in local currency uh, you know, in many places, we're not selling local currency and, you know, we're not selling to uh, a regulated utility. You know, you know, we still have some of those clients, uh, but the preponderance is dollar, it's long term and it's clean. So that's a very robust business. Uh, and so I feel very good about it. So I think the key is you can't assume the same business model for the states abroad. I mean, uh we had to focus much more on, say, CNI and, and sectors. You know, we're going to decarbonize the mining sector. Um, you know, now uh, we're working on the, say, the um, uh, web services sector. Well, they have different problems. I mean, if you have web services in India, you have to run diesel continuously uh, because they're much more service interruption. That's not a problem in the U.S. However, the it's interesting. Intellectually, sometimes the problem's the same in terms of you know how do you minimize costs and, and uh, costs and optimize uh, you know delivery. So there are commonalities, but there are specific issues. Now our goal is to be 50% U.S., 50% international. We think that's a good balance. 
Um, and our goal is to be 50% renewable uh, as soon as possible. And our goal is to, you know, be zero carbon by 2040. Uh, and again, that is just really measuring our own asset base, but it's really not measuring the effect we have on the global system by being open source and sharing these new technologies. So it's, the, it's both the direct and indirect contribution you're making to climate change that is sort of not captured by the, you know, the, the, the standard approach to measuring ESG. Um, you mentioned, so, um, you mentioned uh, India and other countries. Uh, just lastly, before we ask my last person a question for you, Andres, is supply chain. It's come up a lot. Uh, the US, uh, the Biden administration just released a supply chain analysis they've done. It's come up in Europe uh, recently at the G7, a lot of discussions on supply chain. Um, what concerns you and what excites you about the evolving supply chain when it comes to clean energy? Well, I'm excited that the whole world wants to, uh, you know, be more involved in the supply chain. I think it makes it more robust, and I think uh, it's it's a good development. You know, for example, our uh, energy storage company, Fluence, recently signed a deal with Northvolt, and they're building a new battery factory in Poland, uh, and we will have one train dedicated to us, and we'll jointly participate in. Um, developing some of the new batteries. So, you know, I can see that, you know, Africa, Middle East, Europe, that will be probably the most efficient supply of batteries. And that's a great thing. Uh, we will have a similar agreement for Asia and a similar agreement for the Americas. So it's it's not anti-globalization. It's just saying, you know, uh, making your supply chain more robust, quite frankly, lowering the carbon footprint by transporting things uh, less distance. Uh, so to me, I think what's important is that the changes be made in a way that's allows us to actually make the investment. Uh, I think we all had a, a lot of fits and starts uh, in the States when it was what was going to be done, for example, with supply of, of solar panels from China. Uh, you know, was it, what was the tariff? We didn't know. Um, then there was a tariff on the solar panels. Then we worked on setting up a factory here in the States uh, with one of the big suppliers, but then they put a tariff on aluminum. So, you know, that was the major input. So the fact is, a factory was never built because it never became cost efficient. So they have to take a holistic approach to this. It has to be consistent and it has to have realistic timeframes. Uh, but I think I think all those things are good if, uh, if done properly because the world will have a more robust supply chain. You know, Lawrence, you know, when, when I talked recently, I was talking about that my biggest concern about renewables was uh, having enough supply to meet, which I think is going to be a truly remarkable growth in demand. Uh, so we've been working on that problem for, for many years, you know, because uh, uh, we see shortages of everything appearing. And uh, we have a, a pipeline of potential projects of 33 gigawatts. You know, more than 20 of that is in the U.S. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, that means we have uh, land rights, actually owning the land, interconnection rights, environmental permits, you know, at, at various degrees. They're not all equally advanced. But what we see is that we suppliers have to be able to meet the growing demand because if you add up all the companies' renewable pledges and government's renewable pledges, it's an astronomical amount. It's an astronomical, and, and again, it reminds me of telecom. It's something that the electricity sector has never seen. So we're working on having a robust supply chain, but of everything, of developers, of uh, equipment, of land, of permits, and of technologies. 
Yeah, and you know, just to put a punctuation mark on that point about supply chain, one of the concerns I know I've I've had, and listening to you brings it up again, is what happens if the rest of the world wants to get at that high level of renewable? Could you see a demand surge that will lead to a price surge? Right, so all of a sudden the demand for these resources go way up. Obviously, then the price of electricity and the price of renewable goes up. Well, I just want to end, Andrew. Two quick questions. One, you mentioned open source, which makes AES a very interesting company, open source. Uh, how do you attract young talent to this industry? Well, honestly, we're having no no trouble attracting uh, young talent. I mean, just like we're able to attract small companies uh, to work with us, we're able to attract young people to come work with us. You know, I think that, um, you know, the cultural aspect is, is very important. So millennials are much more interested in mission and are much more interested in work culture than, say, um, you know, baby boomers or where where financials were number one. So I'm not saying financials aren't important, but you have to give them the complete package. So uh, what's very important is that you walk the talk. So nobody is perfect. You know, we aren't zero carbon yet. So they have to see that we're very sincere about making a huge effort to get there. You're a very busy man, Andres, and but even a busy man like you may have to have some time where you can just unwind and, and do other things. And so um, perhaps reading. Uh, I know that you, you, you do have a very interesting international perspective of the world. So from a reading perspective, as a way of relaxing, what was the last book you read or the book you're currently reading that you think helped you to relax? <laughs> uh, look, I, I tend to read nonfiction. Uh, so I've been reading... Um, Let's see, I sometimes have a couple books uh, at once. So I've had some um, sort of geopolitical books uh, analyzing the uh, conflict among the major global powers, uh, books on demographics. I think that's, uh, I'm an economist by training, but I think that the big thing that people have missed is demographics. Uh, so for example, analyzing Japan, you can't analyze Japan economically, if you don't understand the graying of the population, what will happen to China as it grays? Uh, what are the effects on Europe? Uh, and what are the effects at the op opposite uh, end of the spectrum in Africa with this uh, tremendous um, demographic boom? So those are some of the things that have interested me uh, the most um, recently. Uh, I think that, you know, besides reading, it's very important to get out and use your body. So I've been doing a lot of biking and some running and things like that. Well, Andres, thank you so much for taking your time to spend with us here at EI Global Circuit. Uh, and um, we look forward to seeing you sometime again soon. Well, thank you very much, Lawrence. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.